0: paramount plus and the national park foundation present a mountain of zen this earth week you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on paramount plus paramount plus official streaming partner of the national park foundation welcome into to the yachts audibles podcast matt preem eric scopel jared mack on this tuesday edition of the show Welcome to the Odds podcast. A lot to get to. It's uh, been an eventful, I don't know, four or five days. We've got a reinstatement with Treshawn Holden. We're going to discuss that. We've seen a couple coaching hires from uh, an assistant off-field rules get announced. Uh, and then also basketball heading into its tournament play for the women. Uh, final weekend of the season for the men and both teams coming off wins, which is a good thing to see, but let's start with Treshawn Holden. Um, Alabama transfer wide receiver was arrested, um, put into jail, uh, was released from jail. And then the local uh, authorities here, the uh, district attorney decided not to um, press charges. Uh, and Dan Landing has reinstated um, Treshawn Holden after removing him from the program following his arrest. Uh, this is a good news for Trayshawn Holden. His name has been cleared um, legally. That's the most important thing. Uh, found no wrongdoing. Um, and secondly, for Oregon, which we're going to talk about, uh, this fills some concerns with depth again. And you know, when he, when he was gone, it was well like they've got the bodies, but if they suffer one injury, things could get dicey. Now they've you know they get a starter back or at least we should say a, a projected starter. Uh, and every you know every guy down below him goes down a ring, which just gives you a little bit more depth, better depth, more established depth.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the concern we had when we recorded uh, a podcast, which might have been one of my most recent podcasts. I was off for the week uh, and, and haven't really had a whole lot of time to discuss the Holden situation, I don't think, on, on air. And I, I think this was pretty notable um, you know, from a roster perspective, this was a guy who we had all marked in as a probable starter. Um, as we talked about, I think on that podcast, I'm remembering, you know, where do you go now? Is it worth using a scholarship? I think that was going of be a bit of a disappointment if you had to utilize one there, obviously it would be replacing Holden's uh, outgoing scholarship in that case. But uh, you, this late in the process, you just don't know if you'd, you'd find a player with starting experience at that at the specific position that, you know, Holden has. So uh, No, I, I think it's really notable that he is reinstated and, and with the team again, it, it certainly clears up the concerns you had at receiver. I think offensively, the only position you now kind of go, gosh, they better add a player it remains tight end. And that's been a position we felt that way for a while. And there won't be any movement on that until May. So, um, you know, we don't need to go down that one too far, but, you know, I, I, I think had, had, you know, they not reinstated Holden and and you'd gone through spring and maybe you'd gone through spring and come out the other side saying, okay, we feel okay about it. But I do think there's another world where you would have felt, ah, God, we need to add a body here or or two. And to avoid that, you know, added roster addition, I think is probably a win. And then at, at the end of the day, this is a guy who proved he was pretty darn dangerous around the red zone for an Alabama offense last year. That was not obviously peak Alabama, but not exactly a scrub either, um, competing all the way, you know, deep into their season for a potential conference championship berth. So, um, you know, a, a quality player. And we've kind of talked about his skill set and how it fits at Oregon ad nauseum. So I don't need to go over it too much. But, yeah, this is this is a win for Oregon. And certainly, um, you know, I don't know how much I want to get into the off the field part of it. But I think this is the first real major off the field incident with an Oregon football player in a minute and that's a very positive thing and i think you also feel just from a perspective of the type of athletes that are in the program that as as matt laid out you know there's no legal ramifications and, and from everything that's been kind of detailed it doesn't sound like holden there was really any wrongdoing involved there so you like to see that too in general in terms of uh of if you're supporting a, an athletic venture you, you hope that those involved in it are are stand-up citizens and you know one player out of 85 doesn't ruin that, but you certainly like to just make sure that everybody on there, you know, has has somewhat of a clean history or whatnot. So I, I think all, all around, this is a pretty big story for, for Oregon and a, and a nice victory um, after what could have been kind of a disappointing outcome had had there been, I think, more legal standing to, to keep him off the team.
2: Yeah, it would have been, <clears throat> excuse me, it uh, would have been really disappointing if Trey Sean had, and, you know, what wasn't reinstated by Dan. Um, I think I'll touch on that, and I apologize for my voice sounding a little, little hoarse, a little Muppety here, uh, who's battling a head cold this past weekend. But uh, you know, I, I think it was the right decision from Dan to originally uh, you know suspend Trayshawn Holden from the team just because uh, he's clearly got a zero tolerance policy when it comes to his his players and his player and his personnel as well. Um, I think as details came out, uh it was clear that. Dan had a, a change of mind and a change of direction once the further details of the issues came out and Treshawn Holden's name was cleared. Um, I think that's just how it should work in general. Uh, I think it's how it works in the core of law. Um, and I think that Dan made the right decision by uh, you know, moving in swiftly, taking the chance and dismissing Treshawn from the team, but also made the right decision by reinstating him. And I think it, it, the way Dan worded it in his official statement, it was more of a, uh, you know, Treshawn has, has the opportunity to rejoin the team. So if Treshawn had felt slight felt slighted in any way possible, I'm sure he could have, you know, entered the portal in May and go find another team. But um, it was clear from the, the, the three, four weeks, five weeks that he's been here uh, since transferring from Alabama that he feels a part of the program and a part of the team. And, you know, respects Dan for making that original decision. Um, so I think all in all for the, for the program, it's, it's a very important uh, past couple of weeks. Um, you get Trayshawn back on the team. We talked ad nauseum about how they needed a Z receiver. Um, I guess I'll kind of transition into the into the football part of this, but um, they needed a Z receiver. We went over that for probably 20 or 30 minutes, um, and now they have one. They have their their projected starter, their projected Z receiver, um, someone who I think can make an impact in this offense <laughs> overall. Um, you know, it didn't, didn't seem great there for a couple of days, just where it was – wow, Oregon's going to need another receiver instead of having to rely on guys who are unproven or true freshmen, whatever the case may be. But now it looks a little little brighter at the end of the tunnel there. Um, so it's always good to see for for Oregon's wide receiving group. But I think adding adding holding back into the mix gives their offense a little bit more of a prolific look and exactly the body type and the receiver skill set that you want there. So, yeah, it was a, it was a good outcome for Oregon. Um it certainly has been, you know, a wild couple of weeks in collegiate athletics in terms of, you know, players being arrested, especially with the Brandon Miller case going on. Um, so for Oregon, this is certainly uh, the, probably the best result possible.
0: Now, I don't think we need to go too much into the, just the impact here because we did it when Treshawn Holden committed, mm-hmm. like Jared said, they've got right. their Z receiver. Um, they did announce a couple off field roles um for for the football program as well and these are going to be more and more common because the ncaa is allowing more coaches to coach on the field and it's going to turn into essentially an arms race what programs have the resources to hire qualified coaches and pay them good salaries even though they're not technically one of the air quotes 10 assistant coaches uh, that that are on your staff, you know, your running backs coach, your your quarterbacks coach, your defensive line coach. Uh, the College ball is trending towards the NFL, where the NFL has the defensive line coach, and then they've got the assistant defensive line coach. That's where Elite Terry came from. Uh, he was an assistant defensive line coach uh, as uh, this past season for the Minnesota Vikings. Now is Oregon's offensive line coach, and they've hired two new guys to fill these kind of, kinds of roles. Um, both of them, strong ties with the Oregon State Beavers, which I thought was interesting. Um, Mike, or excuse me, Brian uh, Michaelowski is has been hired as the inside linebackers assistant coach. He actually spent time working with Dan Lanning at Georgia. This is a young coach, up and comer. Um, he spent time coaching Colorado's outside linebackers. He was a defensive analyst for Colorado as well. Um, spent some time under the Mike Norvell tree at Memphis as a graduate assistant coach. He's got some JUCO experience. Um, he's even coached, um, I think, overseas the year in like European. Yeah, you're forgetting as, the most
2: important one. He was a defensive coordinator for the German Football League.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: that's yeah, that's 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 on. incredible. staple to have on your resume. That 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 yeah, that, gets that you was the job. most
2: impressive thing I found about him. And they then he was down.
0: also a uh, uh, undergraduate, wide range of titles at Arizona State. Um, so this looks like a someone who was viewed as you know an up and coming position coach. It uh, Was noted as a top twelve, a top fifteen back twelve recruiter um, a couple years ago when he was at Colorado. It's got some connections with Dan Lanning, obviously. Um, and then they've also hired. Um, Mike Kavana, and that name may sound familiar more familiar because it's a longtime Oregon State uh, offensive line coach um, spent I think over a decade at Oregon State um, worked with Mike Riley there um, and was there during you know Oregon State some of their biggest seasons in program history and you like to see this um, I, I think this is a good hire because Alik Terry is young. We talked about this. Like, hey, like, there's probably gonna be some growing pains here. This is his first power five position job. It's a big job. And now you've got a longstanding coach who can he can lean on, who can give him tips, and who's also just pretty darn good himself, uh, as an assistant coach. Um, pretty I, I think these are two good hires, and this is why it's important that. Football programs like Oregon have the resources they can to afford these types of coaches because it's po- insanely positive.
1: These hires both made a lot of sense, and I think um, Michalski has been a name I think we've seen for a couple of years, a couple cycles because of his ties with Landing, and and it's notable that inside linebackers, the position group he's leading, is the position group that, <clears throat> excuse me, Landing has been in charge of working with um, as the defensive coordinator. You know, uh, his responsibility has been inside linebackers. Tosh has been working outside linebackers, etc. So this was this was a, uh, you know, you're bringing in somebody who has to have a very, uh, I guess, specific understanding of what Laning wants from that position group, somebody that will be working on a day-to-day basis with Laning. So this is going to have to be somebody that has a, a this is aside from obviously the, the position coaches on the field, like one of the more. Um, important roles, I think, to fill on the staff for landing. in terms of this is a a guy who's going to be kind of his eyes and ears when he's not there in that room. So um, I think it's pretty notable and pretty telling based upon the the kind of shared history. I wish Dan had a little experience as well in the German Football League because we'd probably have some great stories to hear, but uh, I digress. Because what was the big story about Mario Cristobal when he was here? He had that fun element about he was almost a a CIA agent. Dan doesn't quite have the uh, the career uh, touchstone like that. What's the closest thing? The nah, he's,
2: he's just got a normal, really good career. Was it where he starts as a GA and then moves his way up to defensive coordinator? It's kind of boring. Such it's an average Joe. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of stinks. Yeah.
0: Was Mario CIA or was it Secret Service? I thought it was Secret Service.
1: Uh, was it Secret Service? I can't remember. Somebody, when are you somebody Google Say it. Pink. It was one of the two. He was trying to get. He was. I thought he was going to be Kevin Costner in the Bodyguard. Well, that would be—I mean, that would be pretty dang impressive. Great film, by the way. People should check that one out. its has—it's it has, about uh, 20, 20 plus years old at least now. Uh, twenty five, maybe thirty, actually. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, you no, know, so so yeah, but back, I I think that hire made a lot of sense. That was again a name that I think we'd seen kind of rumored tied to Dan for each of the last couple of years, and so for him to finally make it out makes a lot of sense. And then Kavanaugh is like this one. I, I could have seen this from a mile away, not him specifically, but just trying to find a veteran coach to pair yeah. with, with Terry, right? As Matt kind of laid it out, I don't have much more to add, but you know, right when I saw that name attached, and you know, last week I think it was rumored and then finalized on Monday afternoon, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, duh, obviously they need, you know, not not that Terry can't handle the job, but if you're gonna, you know, you are going to on most staffs have an assistant offensive line coach, having somebody who's got as many years experience coaching as Terry has years on this planet. Cause I think Terry's 27 and Kavanaugh has been an assistant coach for more than three decades. Um, makes a lot of sense. I think, I think it's a, you know obviously I don't know the personality marriage as well, but just from a career achievements and kind of what you're looking for. Uh, you've got the really young position coach up and coming. Everybody's really high on got he's got some recruiting chops potentially. And then you've got Kavanaugh who's been around the block a time or two has success, has as Matt said, uh, you know ties to the region is, is, is coached in the Pac-12 for a long time, as coaching ties throughout the country. But you know, so I think specifically working in the state, it makes a ton of sense, and I think fits really nicely with what with what uh, they're trying to do offensively. And it'll be interesting to see now as we get into this, um, kind of what the blend between those two working together is, and you know, is is Terry particular, you know, primarily working with the interior linemen and Kavanaugh with the tackles. You know, kind of what the hierarchy, how does all of it work out? Because Typically, there is a breakdown of some sort like that, and I know Terry, and historically, has been more of an interior guy, given what he coached or what he played in college as a center. I should say so. Yeah, no, I think they make a lot of sense.
2: I agree. I looked up the name pronunciations for Mikulowski, and that's what it is because I, I was I was confused of what it was going to be, but I thought that Kavanaugh was pretty pretty easy to to understand there, and then Mikulowski was was going to be the tough one. But um yeah, I mean, I'm. Kavanaugh has obviously the the more impressive resume and is somebody who's going to be an immediate help to the program and somebody who's, you know, no disrespect, Mike, if you're listening to the program, but he comes in as probably the oldest man on the staff by 20 (laughs) years compared to everybody else. I mean, he's been at least an assistant offensive line coach since 1987. So 10 years before I was born and uh like like eric was saying like, he's got more coaching experience than elite terry has years on this on this planet um but i think that's exactly what they needed eric just like you said you didn't you saw this type of hire coming from a mile away but obviously it wasn't exactly going to be mike but they needed a dude who could come in and you know talk about his coaching experience and he's been doing that and it's not like it's not like he hasn't been coaching recently he's been the Syracuse offensive line coach for the last 4 years since 2018 before that he was at Nebraska before that he was at Hawaii um, excuse me Oregon State for 9 years then Hawaii before that um, yeah he, you know, was started our, as he was he was
1: a Mike Riley guy for a really long time there, yeah. basically from 97 to 2017
2: mhm i skipped one of them i apologize but yeah, a, a Connecticut born man, so we love that about him. Um, you know, really appreciate adding that to the staff. Um, I think it's a really good hire for Oregon. I think he's just going to be a guy who sticks around and you know helps offensive linemen. And while Alik might do most of the recruiting side of it because of his age, um, Mike is an excellent offensive line coach. He has you know like dozens of players who have gone on to the NFL. Um, but for Mikulowski, uh this is a perfect name. This is exactly this was. You know, surprisingly, with his resume, he wasn't initially on the Dan Landing staff when Dan first started because, oh. uh, you know, met up at Memphis back in 2015-2016, outside linebacker coach for Dan, inside linebacker, defensive graduate assistant at Memphis under Mike Norvell. Then they meet up again when Dan's the outside linebacker at Georgia. Um, Michalowski follows Mel Tucker to Colorado. That doesn't really work out for Michalowski. It works out for Mel because he gets his new contract at Michigan State. Uh, Carl Durrell retains him. Then they both get fired because they stink. Not Mikulowski, but the whole program. Uh, that team was really, really poor. And then Oregon State picks him up as a defensive quality control analyst. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to put into words what those defensive quality control analysts do, mostly because I'm not 100% sure what they do at all given times. I don't have, like, uh, a resume of what, what these guys do on as a defensive quality control analyst. But... Uh, that was a good defense that, that Oregon State had last season, um, especially with their linebacking room where they were across the field. Uh, you know, they, they did their job at points. Obviously, you know, everybody thinks about the Oregon-Oregon State game and how defensively the Oregon State, you know, the Beavers' defense really changed the complexion of what that game looked like. Um, I don't know how much Michalowski has to do with that, but what I do know is that linebackers are a specialty. Um, he's been coaching them. Basically, the entire time that he's been either a graduate assistant or a quality control analyst or a defensive coordinator in Germany. Um, mind you, his defensive coordinator role in Germany, uh, they brought, oh, who was it? They brought their team to six more wins the next season, a playoff first, first time in program history, and a playoff win for the first time in program history. So, talk oh, about wow. turning around a defense and a program. Mikulowski has done it at, at a the national level. <laughs> and the country, so and I'm German not is sure. Be better. <clears throat> I know I'm not sure if anybody has the resume that Mikulowski has. Compared, I mean, he's helping nations out there on defense. So, um, but yeah, you know, I digress. I think these are both very good hires for Oregon. I think it really, yeah, you know, it's just going to help the program a lot. Um, these were two roles that, it, that immediately need to be filled. Um, in fact, Viane, the guy who left Oregon as the off- assistant offensive line coach. Yeah just hired by Stanford for their official offensive line coach yesterday so that was really big for him I'm, I'm happy for him he was uh, you know really important off the field guy here for Oregon in recruiting and with just personal relationships and coaching but uh, to see him go from in the same offseason go from being the off name the offensive line coach at naU to being the name the offensive line coach at Stanford um, massive step up so I think it's a good good obviously great for Vianney, and then it's a good tell of who Dan is going after and how they progress and how they rise to the rankings, just like he did.
1: Can I, can I, Should sorry. Note can that, I, uh, I, I no. just had one stup- stupid, thing to say. I didn't, no. I've got update on the age of Kavanaugh. I think you've been too critical on the guy. He's only like 58.
2: Okay. But how old is the oldest person on, on Oregon's well, football did, staff? Did, did, like 38? Did he, did
1: he, did he, did he, Demetrius Martin's like probably. I mean, now I'm aging people. I'm just saying, like you know, he's not that much older. I mean, he's roughly the same age as me. Meets like fifty.
2: He's like double the age of Will Stein.
1: Yeah, well, well no, <laughs> uh, not quite. Yeah, he's double the. He, but he is literally double the age of Luke Terry. <laughs> like more more than double the age.
2: No disrespect, Mike. Again, this is it's just.
1: I mean, Oregon has had a lot of
2: young players or young staff members to too. their to their team. Unfortunately, Mike, you just stand out.
1: He graduated from a school I'm sure you're very familiar with, Southern Connecticut State, in 1986. Oh yeah, go! go, I was expecting. Is it really the Owls? I was expecting you to know the mascot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Come on. So the uh, Michaelowski, the younger assistant coach here that was been hired, uh, his two of his top three recruits that he's ever signed uh, have come from the state of Arizona. Um, I think this program has dillingham was a big part of it they still felt like after his departure that um, they had good positions in the state to recruit that area um, but i you know i, I think Oregon continues to to see something in the state of arizona that they want to be able to go out and find talent in that area and that's just an antidote that maybe it means something maybe it means nothing um and it's going to be interesting just to see, A, how long these guys are here. Um, Mike I would imagine, is the one that's probably going to be sought after more um, if success just because of age. He could, you know, maybe, maybe Mike, you know, maybe he turns into, you know, a coach and he wants to be the, the full-time gig again uh, as an offensive line coach. But I, I suspect he's going to have a pretty nice job because – He'll have to be involved in recruiting, yes, but I would imagine most of his gig is going to be on-field scouting, player development, getting the team ready game to game, week to week, season to season, while Terry does that on top of handling a majority of the off-campus recruiting. Uh, Mike on-campus will be involved, sure, but it's not his primary thing. Um, I, I feel like Brian is going to be someone that's going to probably have to toe both lines here. You know, pretty, pretty aggressive on the recruiting trail, pretty aggressive skill development. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into basketball. Hey, breaking news for basketball for the women while we've been doing the pod. I don't Ooh. know if Eric's seen, seen this or not, but uh, we'll, we'll touch base on it. Oh, jeez! Uh, after the break. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Uh, all conference honors have been released. Oh, I haven't seen these for the women. Okay. Um, a
1: live reaction. The women
0: did the women did not get any of the individual awards, which I don't think should come as a surprise. <laughs> a,
1: well, I mean, Van mate would have been a good candidate, maybe as freshman of the year.
0: Yes. Yes, that is that is true. Van Sluutin as a freshman um, would have been one, but. She did not get it. And Dea Rogers, uh, the only Oregon Duck to be named an all-conference player. Yeah, sounds right. Honorable mention includes uh, Tahina Pow Pow and Grace uh, Van Sluten And then we also saw um, Chance Gray get honorable mention all-defense. And then the all-freshman team includes Chance Gray and Grace Van Sluten. So any surprises there, Eric? Who is the freshman of the year? Uh, freshman of the year is Regan Beers out of Oregon State, or Regan Beers out of Oregon State, and she also won Sixth Player of the Year as well. Sixth Man of the Year, or Sixth Man. I
1: I, I I think Vance uh, Sluten and Beers are both probably pretty similar footing in terms of of that one. That was the one that I thought in theory, and I, I genuinely haven't seen these, so I'm kind of reacting live. I, that That was the one that I anticipated Oregon had a chance of. Of probably winning, uh, I think if Van Sluten had maybe finished the season, uh, she, she you know she didn't play the final three games, she'd have a pretty good chance. Um, you know, Beers is an interesting player because she's probably Oregon State's most gifted offensive player, but she came off the bench. Um, but statistically, like they're, I mean, I don't know, pretty comparable. Thirteen and eight for Beers and fourteen and six for Van Sluten. So both on pretty pretty mediocre teams this year. So ah, kind of interesting. No, I'm not totally surprised with any of that. And then, uh, player of the year, I was curious if it was going to be Peely or uh, or Brink. Uh,
0: player of the year is Peely. Yeah. And then yeah. defensive player of the year is Brink. Peely at Utah and Brink of Stanford. Yeah.
1: Oh, that sounds about right. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I don't have a whole lot more to, to say on that. I guess uh, um, I'm sure there's only people that thought Van Sluten should have won that. Probably could have a case for it, but I mean, had she played more and had the team been a little more successful, I think she probably would have. I mean, if the team was maybe in sixth place in the conference and she played the last three games at a high level and they'd won those games with her playing, maybe it changes things. I don't know, but um, I don't know yeah.
0: um, Beers' stats, but there's, seeing there's, the press release from Oregon, I mean. Scoring isn't everything, but Van Sluten leads the Pac 12 in all freshmen and scoring and is fourth among all Power Five freshmen in the country in scoring. Um, that's yeah. a pretty big stat. And to not win Freshman of the Year, must tell, must say that Beers has got just really balanced, insane stats.
1: Oh, well, she's thirteen and eight, and and Luton's fourteen and six. Pretty much the same shooting from the field. Yeah. Uh, Beers is a good free throw shooter, a little better, but no, I mean, yeah, they're, they're very comparable. That's why I, I kind of had anticipated Vince Luton had a. Not, we don't need to with this too much because you get to maybe the team, but I, I, I anticipated Vince Luton had a pretty good case for that award, and I think if again, I think if she'd maybe played the last three games, it's a bit of a difference. But sure. uh, two really good players. I mean, both were top twelve, I think, recruits in the country. Beers was was, I think, the highest rated non-stanford freshman in the conference that's saying something because there's a lot of highly regarded
0: incoming players so all right so the women their their regular season is over they go to vegas yesterday or today so you know i, today. I would imagine yeah um where does this program stand going into vegas because it seems like everyone is hurt but right. they've also come off two really good wins at home
1: yeah, they got the monkey off their back, so to speak. And I think it was, I mean, what they did this past weekend is give themselves a chance at making the tournament. And it's not a great chance. I mean, I think it's probably now beating Washington gives you maybe a 50% chance, maybe a little better than that to get in. Um, you lose to Washington, you don't make it. And by the way, I probably should say for those who aren't following closely, Washington is who Oregon plays in the opening round of the Pac-12 tournament on Wednesday. At a 2.30 p.m., tune in if you, if you care to see how they do. Um, if they win that game, I think there's a decent chance that they make the tournament. They're currently the first team out of the field, according to Charlie Cream, who does the uh, the bracket for the women. And they're 18th in the net. It's, they're 18th in the net, and they're 16 and 13 on the season. It's just uh, sort of outrageous. I, again, I th- think I've said this before. Um, this is probably like the one of the Oregon is probably one of the weirder teams the committee's ever had to look at and decide what to do with because they're they have the seven game losing streak, they're barely 500 overall, they have a, they're 7 11 in conference play. Yet the conference is really tough. Every team Oregon lost to on the season, aside from Oregon State and probably Washington, is, is 100% making the tournament and dancing. And a lot of them are top three, four, five kind of seeds, like about half of them are going to be teams that are in the top. Five seeds. So these are really good teams. They're losing to, but at the same time, putting a team with 16 wins and seven in, eleven in its conference feels kind of weird, especially when they had this seven-game losing streak. So um, the victories help a lot; gives you some momentum. Um, the unfortunate thing is is that uh, you know Ben Sluton doesn't sound like we'll play on Wednesday. And now Chance Gray, who is who is their fourth-leading scorer, and you know, as as Matt noted, one of the top freshmen in the conference, one of the one of the better on-ball. Perimeter defenders in the conference. I don't know if she's playing on Wednesday. Um, Kelly Graves was, you know, said it's a question mark if she's available. And if she doesn't play, it's not just that now you remove another really good player, it's that you don't really have anyone left. Um, You only have seven players available, which is, which is barely, I mean, that's not even really an operable roster. And and by the way, Oregon's not the only team like that. I think, uh, I think it was Texas. Uh, last night who I was watching on TV, who also only had seven, and that's a, a really good program. And LSU is short on bodies. So, and I'm sure there are us, you know us, dozens of other examples around the country of programs that don't have a lot of players this time of year. Um, but it really is a, it's a tough spot to be at when you are in a must-win game on Wednesday and you'll be playing Washington, who, by the way, just beat Oregon about nine days ago. Um, I think a team that Oregon has more talent, than, but a team that clearly has the ability to beat them, as they just did, uh, it's a tough break. It's a tough situation, and I'll let I'll let Jared, if he has some thoughts, run in, and I because I have a couple more on just the tournament and as a whole. But um, it, it's I think Saturday was probably one of those days for Kelly where you went cool. We got the win. We needed to win, but because they only had eight available players, he couldn't rest everybody. And at the end, Tahina goes down, and Chance Gray goes down, and now you're dealing with a situation where at least one of them, it sounds like, might might not be available, which is which is hurts when you have a short
2: bench to begin with. <clears throat> Bless you, Matt. Um, there was uh, Tahina went down on Thursday as well, towards towards the middle or towards the end of the game. Uh, There's just a big collision across like the middle of middle of the court where Tahina caught like somebody's leg to her leg. It was very very strange collision. But uh, post game, she said that she was all right. Yeah, I mean this is an uh, the, the depth concern is something we talked about like uh, four months ago when the season basically began of like. All right, well Jenna Asai leaves, Sedona Prince leaves, uh, suddenly you're down to like nine operable players, two people get hurt and you're really in a pinch and here we are, They're, they are in a pinch. Um, you know, it's tournament time. So, it, you know, basically like the end of the NBA season or football season or whatever season, it's everybody's dealing with injuries, everybody's got them, some nicks and bumps here. Um, Van Sluten, I mean, do we wanna play Ewing Theory on this or are, are we good, Eric?
1: Do you, do you wanna play Ewing Theory on this?
2: I mean well, I think I mean, the, I just I, I, the thought has crossed I just my think mind it opens too. up the floor a little bit more than when they where they were before because no, I, Grace, I think is, that point, sir. Grace operates, you know, basically exclusively from seventeen feet and in. And we've seen Tahina Pau and your Rogers both score 15 points or more in the last two games, uh, both wins, mind you. Um, so I think those that those were very solid performances, and Pow Pow, especially against ASU, who's a lesser opponent, I thought her performance against Arizona might have been better just because of how good defensively Arizona is. Um, and she had some huge shots to push the lead to 10, to 12, to 15, uh, where they ultimately won. Um, I mean, I still think Grace is incredibly talented. We talked about how the fact that she really had a good contention to win Pac-12 freshman of the year. Um I, I don't know, I, I think it's worth an Ewing Theory well, conversation. Again, I don't want to dismiss Van Sleuton because she's really good, and I think that her her future is really, really bright at Oregon just because of her pure talent level. But I do think it kind of spaces up the floor and gives them more driving lanes and gives them more opportunities to find open shooters. Um, you know, this comes down to, like, the men's team, too. When Oregon hits their shots and from the perimeter, they're pretty hard to beat. Um, So that's what they've been doing the last two games when they're on the two-game winning streak after a seven-game losing streak where they did not hit their perimeter shots. So I don't know. I mean, I don't want to dive too into it. It It's more of a joking Ewing theory matter. But but it's interesting the way the level of the play has changed over the last two games.
1: what, what What I've always thought watching kelly graves teams and i've watched probably more than than most because i watched at oregon and and also at gonzaga but when when his teams have been at their best it's typically with one traditional big and then a kind of a more Mm -hmm. versatile power forward who can do a little bit more on the perimeter think about what satu League offered oregon here um yeah gonzaga they had a couple players that were um it's been 10 plus years i can't think of her name but they had they had a good stretch kind of power forward who was also capable at the top of the key and I could probably look up her stats now, but who really cares? Um, but that that has always kind of, to me, felt like from a roster build, the the the, the one that makes the most sense for the type of offense they want to use, where you've got, um, you know, you're, it's a very it's a it's a high they utilize the pick and roll a lot, and usually having a very good like Ruthie Ruthie was obviously excellent in the pick and roll, and she's and she you know could kind of be the, the primarily screener and roller. And then you've got another player who can sit in the corner uh, or or another player who can sit kind of near the back end of the basket for you know to take a, a dump pass. Like those are the types of roles that you typically see there. And I think with Philly being clearly the player you're using in the role the most, you've kind of got Grace in kind of a weird spot. So I could kind of see what you're getting at, Jared, in terms of maybe I could say like, yeah, from a, there's a Ewing theory from a uh, the role that's been kind of changed and Taya's Hansen is now playing kind of, you know, a, a pseudo power forward for role, but it's kind of, yeah, but it's more of a perimeter role where she's defensively, you know, and I think defensively you probably lose a little bit of size and length, but offensively yeah, I, I could see where you probably are onto something. And certainly the, the shooting stats and, you know, who knows why all of it works together this way, but it is interesting that the moment Grace leaves a ro- the lineup that Tahina has three straight really good shooting games. I, I think there are probably a lot of factors at play there and, and not all of them are you know, losing your second leading scorer and mm-hmm. one of the better players in the conference, but um, certainly something that's sort of interesting to think about when you look at this roster and you wonder, I don't know when slash if and Sleuton comes back, because it doesn't sound like it'll be Wednesday and probably isn't Thursday. So I don't know if it'll be this week and then who knows what they have after, but it will be interesting to see how this team adapts. And I think even more interesting will be to see if they adapt at all a year from now uh, where, you, where, you know, well, that, where you've got those players as well. Sorry, what's that?
0: That's like the na- – that's Van Sutton's natural progression, right, is to stretch out that jumper to, you know, to spread the floor. Dude, because okay. her and her and jake you know, that's probably a big reason why it's so clogged up is because they exactly. have two people out there that can't oh. shoot.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I know that was – I mean, I was talking with, with some people on the program, like, they were hoping she could develop into almost a, a small forward at some point, you know, uh, or at least that sort of a skill set. Mm-hmm. And I think you see some, a little bit of it, but she, she struggles passes. to hit. Yeah, but she kind of struggles with that 12, 15 footer, which she shoots a lot. I know we're going down this path probably more than the listeners would like, but well, and she I, struggles
2: at free throws, which is always the telltale sign.
1: Yeah, which she's 67%, which is okay. But yeah, there are some moments where you're kind of going like, it looks good coming off, but it doesn't, it doesn't go down quite as consistent. A six seven's okay for a true freshman. Like I, I expect that'll go up, but like I don't know. Yeah. That I I I, I kind of think I kind of think you, you make an interesting point in terms of just the the way the roster has set up. Like to me, to me, that Oregon has been even even the past couple of years probably at its best when when they play one traditional big and then kind of a versatile mm-hmm. four. I mean, they just really haven't had that many players that can fit that role since Satya left. I right. think that's. That's probably one of the biggest issues they've had since is, is that sort of supplementary role. And it's hard enough to find the, the, the point guard and the, and the big to, to kind of run everything through. But that kind of extra piece there is probably one thing that I, I imagine that they'll continue to kind of work on and, and hopefully focus of Fence Luton's talents into to, to picking that part up.
0: Now, real quick before we transition to the men, just if they beat Washington, they face Stanford, right? Correct. Seems highly unlikely that they get they get the win uh against Stanford. Yeah, probably. Um do you view this as a successful season? Um if they get to Washington and obviously if they don't make the tournament, it's probably a down year, but what's your what's your I guess what's your confidence level that they do make it? Or I guess make make your pick if they if they win the game. They have to like they have to look good and blow out Washington and you know, be competitive with Stanford, or does that matter at all?
1: To your first part, I just want to say I think the season's gonna be looked at as a disappointment almost regardless of outcome unless they beat Washington, beat Stanford somehow, make a make the tournament and then get through the first weekend. Even then that might be kind of looked at as like kind of about what you were expected to yeah, do. This team was picked to finish second in the conference and whether or not that was fair or not coming into the season, like people people thought this team was going to be a lot better than it is. And the fact that they're having to, to kind of battle at the end is, I think for pretty much everybody involved, disappointing. I think from players to coaches, to those who support the program, to those who cover it, um, I don't think anybody's sitting here going like, now this year actually played out exactly how we wanted it to. Like, I think it's right. been a, a kind of dis- disappointing. In terms of the outcome on, on Wednesday, um, I think Washington's a beatable team for Oregon. Um, I actually think the matchup is probably more favorable than – others in part because well like what Washington is is a team that doesn't have um an elite interior player that you have to deal with so Che will be and Che's actually fared really well against the conference's best players like some of her best games have been against Stanford and USC where you have Rhea Marshall and you have Cameron Brink who are you know the the league's probably two premier centers or two premier you know big bigs Peely's kind of more of a power forward but um so that part is is kind of beneficial, where you know if you if you're Washington, and you had a really good big to go to, you could maybe get Che into foul trouble, and without you know, then you have to play a lot of Kennedy Basham, and I think Kennedy's given them some good minutes of late. But I don't know how you feel about her playing more than maybe 12 to 15 minutes per game. Anyway, um, so that part's a positive, and then Washington doesn't really have the the scoring ability that a lot of teams in this conference do. They're really good. I think very, very fundamentally sound, good defensive team. They play smart basketball, but they don't have individual players who on the in, on the perimeter who could in theory keep up with Tahina Pau and Andy Rogers if they're having really good games. So you feel good about like, okay, this matchup could be advantageous if Pow Pau keeps hitting and, and, and Rogers can be consistent and you can get maybe a little bit from Che inside and Hose and Dove and, and Hansen and whatnot. But if Gray doesn't play, the margin of error is basically eliminated because outside of you know, Pow Pow and, and Rodgers, she's really your only other potential big scoring option, you know, and, and she's your best probably catch and shoot three point shooter other than Pow Pow right now. Um, the other par- part that's tough is that you'd probably be elevating either Elise Hurst or Taylor Hosendove to the starting lineup. Hurst has been just really a disappointment. If you look at her stats, it's something else She's shooting, I think about 10% from three in conference play. Um, and it's just been pretty tough. I don't have much more to add there. Yeah. Hosa I actually like and think that that could be okay, but at the same time, like it's still like you're still having to play Hurst to t- like probably 25 plus minutes yeah now as gray can't play. so um no it's it's a tough spot and it's it's a bummer, but I, I mean I think if, if if they were healthy, I think you have a pretty good shot and I think even if gray plays and van Sluton doesn't they have a pretty good shot. but if Gray doesn't play, that's gonna be a real uphill battle for them to try to win with seven players and without two of your top four scorers who, who, again, have been playing 30 minutes per game most of the season to then try to say, hey, we're just going to replace that with a couple of gals off the bench who are playing, you know, 12 to 15 most of the year. It's tough. So, um, no, I, I think they have a shot on Wednesday. I wouldn't, as Matt said, I probably don't have much optimism at all of them beating Stanford. But they've done enough this past weekend where you can, I think, at least go into a game with Washington and say, hey, they, they could very much win this game. But at the same time, you also go, well, they're a little dinged up. They're short some players. I wouldn't be surprised either if it's a if it's a one and done in Las Vegas, which which would be a really kind of a sad sour end to a season.
0: All right, uh, let's shift now to the men here. Um, the Ducks are fifth in the standings. They're ten and eight in conference play. They are sixteen and thirteen overall, um, and even with the three game losing streak at home to UCLA the one point loss in overtime to Washington and then the three point loss at Washington state fourth place is still attainable for the Oregon men. Um, the scenario is pretty simple. Went out and ASU needs to lose to UCLA. Um, doesn't matter if ASU beats USC um, lose to UCLA. Uh, if they Beat UCLA, it becomes basically impossible for Oregon to get uh, the four seed. And why is the four seed important? You get the bye. You don't have to play four games and four nights. You play three games and three nights if you win the whole thing. Um, Oregon's worst-case scenario is they lose two games at home this week to last place California and 10th place Stanford, and they fall to 7th in the conference standings Um, that may actually have a better chance at at getting you to the conference championship game. I think Oregon matches up better with Arizona than they do UCLA. Um, They've beaten Arizona. They've failed to beat UCLA. But you want the easiest path possible, in my opinion. Um, The men go into their last home games this season, and um, much like the women, it, it feels down. It feels disappointing. Um, but I, I don't think either of these, I don't think, I'm pretty sure. I don't think Oregon will we'll get to the tournament with just two wins. You know, winning these f- the final two games of the season shouldn't secure Oregon into the dance. What gets interesting, though, is what happens if they do get that four seed and they do knock off a Utah or an Arizona State in that quarterfinal round and they're 19 and 14 on the season that might be a play-in game i don't know
2: i i mean it's gonna be really close like you said winning this weekend really doesn't do anything um it's a hell of a lot better than losing but winning this weekend gets oregon's like schedule like one percent better like cal and stanford both stink Mind you, Oregon has already lost to Stanford, so that's a pretty, yeah. pretty stinky loss on their resume. So, um, But Cal, I mean, good Lord. Uh, for anybody who's going to the Cal game this weekend, don't. It's a, That's a bad program. Um, but Stanford should be at least an interesting game. They always play Oregon tough, even though whenever they're good, it's an even better game. But even when they're bad, they still play Oregon really hard. Um I mean, yeah, I mean, we have this conversation nearly almost every podcast at this point of what Oregon like almost has to do to get into the tournament. And it keeps kind of changing every week because of the projections and because of who else loses. And because, frankly, no one this year is good at college basketball because every number one or two teams in the country, they all lose randomly to some human or some groups of humans. Some team is what they call (laughs) it in the real world. Um, you know, like Arizona losing to Arizona State on a, a half-court buzzer beater. I mean, that really helps Oregon's resume if you look at it because a- Oregon beat Arizona State and Arizona. So that Arizona State continuing to climb and continuing to be a quad one win or quad one loss really helps Oregon's resume. But, um, I mean, or, again, this all hinges a lot on other teams winning or losing for Oregon to A, get the bye, and B, get into the tournament. So I'm not. I won't sit here and tell you that it's nearly impossible, even though, it kind of is. But there's a good chance that uh, these these routes of what they need to happen happen because of how inconsistent every team in college basketball has been this season, and how crazy March Madness is. I mean, March is literally tomorrow. So you know we're approaching one of the best months of the calendar year. Um, and for Oregon, yeah, you're not in the position you hoped you'd like to be at the beginning of the season or wished you'd like to be at the beginning of the season. But, yeah, I mean, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt in saying that at least you're in a position to potentially make the tournament. But it's certainly not what they expected. It's certainly not what they want. Um, you know, relying on other teams to win or lose is never what you want in this scenario. So... I, again, it's a, it's a slim chance, but it's still there, and I would expect two wins this weekend. If they have one loss, it, that's, that should do it. I won't say it will do it, but it should do it for their uh, their tournament hopes.
0: Well, I mean – They
1: can still win the conference, Jared. They can always still find a way to keep – <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah.
0: like outside of winning the conference, if they lose one of these two games, they're done. Because, I mean, California is 304th. Oh, okay. I in the net rankings unreal that's unbelievable i mean like, like oregon state is bad bad and they are 214th and that is embarrassing for the pac-12 conference and you have to scroll almost like four clicks down your mouse to find california to find the worst team in the conference this game are they the worst uh, power five team i'm pretty sure they're probably close uh i mean i'm I'll, looking right I'll, now i'll pull it up but the 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 point I was going to make is like Oregon gains. The only thing that they gain in this, in this game on Thursday is if they win is another number in the win column because their, their net will go down by playing this game. Their, their strength of schedule will go, will go down by playing this game. This is a game that you play. This is an opponent that you play the first week of the season. And that's the struggle that, Oregon is facing and that's why that UCLA loss at home was so bad and that's why not getting a road split at Washington or Washington State was so important because you knew after that Oregon State was bad and these two teams at home, Cal and Stanford Thursday, Saturday, will do nothing for your NCAA tournament resume. If only thing hurt it. Um, now it, it opens the door also for senior day. It's going to be Will Richardson's final game at, at Oregon, um, unless the NIT comes calling and they get a home game there. Um, and it also could be a moment where we get maybe a little clarity of who could be coming back, who could be saying, I'm also not coming back to Oregon. Will has no choice. He's, he's exhausted all eligibility. And Fale Dante is a senior but has a COVID year. Quincy Guria is a senior but has a COVID year. Uh, Keishon Bartholomew is a senior and he has a COVID year. Uh, Luke Wurr is a redshirt junior. Um, so theoretically, he should be graduating soon. Um, you know, There's going to be some guys on this team that we could make a big deal about them walking or not walking, or it could just be you know a delay of the inevitable. I don't know yet. We don't know that answer. But we, we could get some clarity, maybe even tonight when I go to, back to uh, Oregon Media Day, or media, uh, media availability about just who could be coming back next season, which could give us a better glimpse of what the team could look like.
2: I mean, outside of Dante, is there a player that you'd want back?
0: I think I forgot to mention Rivaldo Sores, too. Um, I, I think if you looked at it and said, hey, like Gurrier, Sores, and, and, uh, Kuznard like if if those three guys said you know as seniors they wanted to come back I, I think you take them Kuznard is a good starter and I think Torres and Gurier could be really solid rotation pieces and if, if and follow Dante wants to come back like yes come be, be our starting I mean, yeah, center that's why I said
2: obviously you take him back but yeah I mean I think if all four the, want to
0: come back I mean, you say yes
2: yeah, I mean, this group hasn't worked, though, for the last two years with, you know, three of those four guys that we just talked about, uh, you know, minus Kuznard, just because, you know, this is his first year with the program. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Kuznard because I, I think a, a full healthy season of Jermaine would, would really be beneficial to Oregon. I just think you can find fresh faces in the transfer portal market that can do very similar traits to what Rivaldo Soares and Quincy Gurrier can do. Um, you know, Gurrier, I really liked last year. I would have argued last season that he was like the the player with the most uh, NBA draft potential because he was like a six foot nine power forward who could spread the floor, sort of. And then this year, he's just completely dipped in his shooting percentages and just his overall play. Um, and for Soares, you know, I love the guy, big Boston person, but you know, other than those five points he just scored at Oregon State, I mean. I mean, he's playing good perimeter defense, but there's a lot of guys I think who can do
0: that. I think Soares's value is his experience and his glue glue guy mentality. You know, you can ask him to be a defender, and he's he's okay with it. You can ask him to be you know a guy that gives you rebounds; he's okay with it. Like, right? You need those. So you need those guys. Need,
2: you do. But I feel like they already have those guys. You can ask Luke Wehr to do exactly the same thing as Soares. And there have been points on the year where they've needed Soares to do more than just defend and rebound. And it's been a struggle other than, again, the five points, the only five points he scored against Oregon State happened to be the most important five points in the basketball game.
0: It's true. It's true. I mean, Luke were Dana Holtman said he's not playing more. Um, I, I think – Soares brings just a little bit more versatility with ball handling because Luke is not a good ball handler, but you're right. Sure. like You can get, you can get some of the stuff that you get from Soares out of Luke were, but the way I just look at it is like, if, if all the, if these, three, if these guys come back, uh, Gurrier, Soares and Kuznard, um, I'm, I'm thinking Dante's gone. Um, if these guys come back, we'll that just show. makes life easier for Evans, Cook, and Shellstead to be your guys. You've got veterans on the team. You've got, you know, I think Quincy and, and Soares are are accepting of their roles as kind of secondary artillery mm-hmm. pieces. Kuznard can be your go-to guy until Evans and, and Cook and Shellstead are there, if they are there next season. I don't know if they will be, but I just feel like You've got the, you've got the 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 experience and you've got the veteran core here in place to allow the freshmen just to be freshmen, not have that expectation to be elite immediately every single night. I have yeah, a I, just, I mean,
1: go for it. I had a trivia cool. question. I did. I did want to interrupt your conversation though, because it seemed like you had banter going. I but it, I I have a trivia thing later if you guys have more.
2: Okay. I just had I just had one more thing. I just. I think oregon in the portal they just got to hit they, they have to try to hit a home run 100%. they need to bring in some dude who can hit 18 to 20 points a night and then that alleviates even more of the freshman pressure because I, I know what you're saying matt with the idea that experience is gonna you know with these uh with these freshmen the experience and the role, the known roles are gonna you know limit their performances and they don't have to feel like they got to be the best guy on the court every night my fear is that they're going to need to think that they are the best guy in the court every night because those the guys that are that would be hypothetically returning outside of Kuznard aren't going to produce that much. So they, they're still going to need to be guys who can score 12 to 15 points a night because I'm not relying on Roboto Soares and Quincy Gurrier to score more than 10 points a night combined. Go ahead, Eric.
1: So earlier we were talking about Cal and how they were – we thought the worst Power 5 team in college basketball, Matt has to leave. Oh, I was hoping to ask this trivia question to Matt, but I'll ask it to you, Jared, as well since you're here and Matt has to leave. I am here. There's actually one Power 5 team that is worse than Cal in the net ranking. Do you, oh, you want to venture a guess? Um, and it is a former – It is. I would say that you would probably consider this program, at least recently, borderline blue blood
2: borderline blue blood recent oh florida state
1: no much worse than them same conference
2: i knew it was the acc they excuse my french they stink they're terrible this season
1: the back half is not good and, and particularly one team which has won four games and has a new coach
2: and uh yeah it's not oh louisville louisville yeah they, they I'm, I'm gonna swear they fucking stink man holy shit oh. they stink they're terrible
1: Matt, uh, we'll the back, question, Matt, did, you hear, the, did you hear the answer to the trivia question?
0: No, I did not. Okay, I didn't know the question either.
1: The question was, uh, and, and it led to Jared using an F-bomb while you are gone, so things really went off. I heard that. Oh, uh, <laughs> no good. good. There actually is one Power 5 team worse than Cal in the net ranking. Uh, Jared got it after two guesses, and, and a bit of a hint. Uh, yeah. do, you, who, do, you, do you want to venture a guess?
0: Worst team than Cal...
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're 308. They've won four games all season. And I was the, the hint I gave ACC. was this is a, a ACC four elite. Yes. I I almost said we talked about this, this program while having beers
0: with Steve Mims. Uh, <laughs> together, which, was, which was a good time. So. Yeah, Louisville, I forgot. Uh, Kenny Payton's inaugural year uh, is disastrous. His first year might,
1: might not be. Might not have more. <laughs> this his PBA. first year
0: maybe is only year.
1: Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Former Oregon assistant coach, by the way.
0: Yes. Josh Jamison, former director of operations, is also there as well, which would be a bummer. Okay. All right. Uh, let's go. It's going to do it for us for the Austin Alamos podcast today. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back later this week with more uh, on the podcast, more football, basketball, recruiting, baseball, softball. Who knows what's going to come on the pod, but we'll be back at some point this week. Till then, you've been listening to the Os and podcast. Talk
1: to you later, folks.
0: Peace.